This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What happens to truck drivers if semis drive themselves? We've gotten very different pictures of that lately. One came from State Senator Owen Hill of El Paso County. He's behind the state's first law regulating autonomous vehicles, which goes into effect next week. Senator Hill told us how excited he was and that he heard the same from one trucker. He said, I don't want to be driving at two o'clock in the morning trying to keep my eyes open drinking Red Bull. If something can do that better for me so they can pay me to do what I do best, Things like maneuvering in a city, unloading, and interacting with clients? Well, then he's all for it. But Governor John Hickenlooper has sounded a bit more anxious. Technology is eliminating entire professions. What happens if all of a sudden so many of the people that are driving vehicles for a living, if suddenly in five years they're not able to have those jobs, or let's say 10 years, probably more likely? Now, this isn't purely academic. Remember that just last year, a self-driving semi transported beer from Fort Collins to Colorado Springs. Today, two perspectives from the trucking industry. Greg Fulton is president of the Colorado Motor Carriers Association, which represents trucking companies big and small. And Rick Ash owns his own rig. He lives in Lakewood, and he's been driving trucks for nearly 30 years. And gentlemen, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Roughly 23,000 Coloradans are long-haul truck drivers, and there are, of course, all sorts of associated jobs. Uh, Greg, is this a time to panic? No, I would uh, say this isn't a time to panic. I think what's happening, we look at it right now, these technologies as being more driver assistance in that because – we look at it as something that may be able to enhance our professional drivers, not replace them. Okay, this time. what would that look like? So you still see the driver in the cab, but with better technology at his or her disposal? Right, much like an airline pilot. Airline pilots have this sophisticated systems, many of which are the same ones that have been brought down to the automobile and truck area. And at least at this point in time, you know, realistically, they aren't in a position actually to truly take over as an autonomous vehicle end of it. Uh, I would say it's happening very fast, so and that that is something to be uh, thinking about. Well, take us into the cab. How might the assistance look? Well, the assistance may look like the fact that when we end up having collision avoidance systems, mm. we are in effectively, it's like almost a sonar or using LIDAR technology or whatever on this end of it. Secondly, you're going to have the items where you have in terms of lane integrity, not only actually being able to have the side radar to see in your blind spots, but also actually if you're leaving that lane, either in terms of into another lane or into the uh, shoulder. Okay. Rick, who do you think paints paints a more accurate, accurate, pardon me, picture here. Do you think the governor's view of the potential job losses is the salient factor here or the assistance that we hear from Senator Hill? Well, I think my biggest, one of my biggest concerns with the whole subject is along the lines of Governor Hickenlooper's thoughts is that not only eliminating jobs, but from the standpoint of if you have a driver in the vehicle and he's not full time behind the wheel doing his job that we're, like we're doing it now that's going to be an opportunity for whoever he's working for to reduce his salary and pay him less cuz they're going to claim he doesn't have as many responsibilities so it's going to benefit who whoever he's working for to pay them less but presumably that person he or she is still in the cab as long but you're saying that 
the work would thus be less demanding and the pay would shrink commensurately? Well, when you take a look, most of the articles that I've seen picture, when they picture an autonomous truck, there's a driver sitting in a jump seat that's behind the driver's seat and he's actually looking sideways, not even looking at the road. He's reading a book or doing paperwork and so forth. So he he's not full-time paying attention to what's happening in front of him. That's just going to be an easy way for for whoever that person is working for to claim that he's not doing as much so we can pay you less now. Greg, speak to that fear for me. Well, I think I, – I don't think I'm as concerned about more so the pay, but I am thinking that, that Rick hits on a good point. We, we we note about distracted driving where we're having a fraction of a second actually if somebody looks at their cell phone or you know gets their eyes taken away from the road. And even though the autonomous vehicle has a lot of sophisticated technology, the time frame for a driver to jump from that jump seat, that's like me jumping from the back seat of my car to the driver's seat. I mean, I, I don't think any of us would say that this is something that, that that's, you know, at that point. So I think is is a good idea. So I think really the way we've looked at it is, uh, at least at this point in time, is we model this after something like almost like the uh, airline industry. You know, airline industry has even much more sophisticated technology than the automobile and truck industry. And yet you still, when you get on a plane, you still see a professional pilot out there. Do you think that there's a risk that salaries would shrink? That's what Greg is speaking to. I mean, pardon me, Rick is speaking to. You know, I I, I don't think that will happen. Where, where I do think could happen, I would look at more so is where I see is, is the elimination of jobs is more so when they're talking about what we would talk about as team operations driving across the country where the truck driver, there would be a truck driver in and end up having the driver be what we call driver number one. Then he would do his mandatory rest break. And then for the other period, the next period, the truck would be in an autonomous mode driving for 10 hours while he's getting that rest break. I think that's kind of more so the schema that we're look, they're looking at today. And that would eliminate jobs? That is today, today there are shifts of driving what but you, done by different individuals? And right. this might you have a team that. operation where yeah. you have two drivers okay. in some cases if you're going across the country continuously like that. Interesting. Uh, I understand that you have fears as well, Rick, about hacking. What do you base those fears on? Well, I mean, when you, when you take a look at, at 2017 alone, so we're talking between the first of the year until now, major companies like Target and Merck and, and Intercontinental Hotels and even the U.S. government have been hacked already. In fact, there was a story in the USA Today just last Friday of Chinese researchers who for the second time hacked into a Tesla and they were able to cause that vehicle to 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 turn on its brakes, to open and close its doors, and to make its light its lights flash by a, a, to a tune that they had programmed into this hacking. Uh, I, I have real big concerns about an 80,000-pound vehicle possibly hauling hazardous materials going down the road be, uh, and being hacked into because – just like cars today, the the car and the truck of today, most of the systems on that vehicle are computer operated. This was reported just last week that for a second time, Chinese security researchers were able to hack a Tesla Model X, turning on the brakes remotely and getting the doors and trunk to open and close while blinking the lights, reading there from that USA Today piece. But do you see any promise here, Rick? I think, for instance, of 
the limitations of a human being and the idea of uh, a lack of sleep contributing to accidents. You know, that's a major cause of accidents that involve crashes, that involve trucks. Well, a couple of things to remember. First of all, you know, in, in to my mind and to my way of thinking, the safest truck on the vehicle on the roadway today is a well maintained truck that's being being driven by a well rested, healthy person who's been properly trained. And um, as far so, when we take a look at the safety part of it, um, the that's what needs to be done is is when you're talking about sleep one of the biggest challenges that truck drivers have today is finding a place to park their truck when they're ready to take that mandatory break that we have to take in order to get that sleep and it's very difficult for us in many parts of the country to find a place to park our truck and there's work being done on it but there's still a lot more that needs to be done so rest is absolutely important one of the most important things to help that driver be safe, but we have a problem trying to find a place to park our trucks today. Greg Fulton from the Colorado Motor Carriers Association. Speak to the safety aspect of this and the fact that many see autonomous technology as a way to make trucking much safer. You've spoken, for instance, to lane integrity and stopping, uh, braking, things like that, but maybe to the sleep aspect. You know, I think... uh Clearly, I would say that I think uh, this technology is going to make – has uh, the opportunity to make things much safer out there and enhance the abilities and capabilities. It's going to be able to react probably faster than than a driver can in, in some of these elements. But I think what happens is we look at it as more of a complementary end of it. I mean you get the best of both worlds here. You have a professional driver who, you know, we need to recognize that there are certain situations where the autonomous technology, at least today, such as in weather conditions, you know, may not function. We also need to realize that right now today in our, you know, world in terms of trucking, probably the greatest uh, situation or problem that we have for downtime on our trucks is sensor failure or faulty sensors. You know, this system is totally based on sensors. And, and the fact is when we place these autonomous vehicles over many, many miles in all kinds of weather conditions and all kinds of pavements and, you know, bouncing around, the uh, what we may see is actually, you know, a greater problem like we're seeing already with some of the sensors. So, the fact so is, the, the, the fact is, maintenance jobs might might Im, might in, increase in this arena. Well, I, I think you will end up having. Um, I, I don't think we've had that situation where we've seen them for you know extensive periods of time uh, in in various types of weather and conditions. And, and let me say, we've we've ended up these other sensor systems on our engines have been around for many years and and clearly and end up sidelining drivers a lot. You're saying yes, exactly. even the current technology. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and. Uh, this, well, next month, it's still July, but in August, the first law in Colorado regulating autonomous vehicles goes into effect. And it got us thinking about what self-driving vehicles might mean eventually for truck drivers. We're getting two perspectives on that today. Greg Fulton is with the Colorado Motor Carriers Association, and Rick Ash of Lakewood is a longtime independent trucker. I want to note that Uh, There's actually a big driver shortage right now, and it's pretty significant in Colorado. Is there some sense that 
thoughts of coming autonomous vehicles might make that driver shortage today even worse, that young people perhaps, Rick, don't see themselves as having a long career in trucking if autonomous technology continues to make strides. Well, two thoughts on that subject. First of all, you are correct. The the industry is having uh, difficulties getting new young drivers to enter into the industry. But I happen to be on the other side of the coin of the subject. I don't believe we have a driver shortage. I believe that we have a problem with keeping good drivers behind the wheel. The way the way that drivers are treated and and not being compensated for all their time out on the road, I think the bigger problem that we're facing is a driver retention problem, not actually a shortage of drivers. Uh, on that point, though, about whether it will be harder to not only recruit but, as you say, keep drivers in the face of autonomous technology, do you think that makes the argument harder? I think it will add another piece to it, yes. I mean, the the, the population the, uh, of truck drivers today, the age is a lot high, higher than, than, um, you know, than the younger folks coming in to say that uh, as these older drivers are retiring, the younger folks aren't seeing truck driving as a career of choice anymore because they see and hear about the problems that existing truck drivers are having as far as compensation packages and, and, like I said, getting paid for all their time and so forth. It's not as desirable an occupation as it used to be. Greg, briefly, do you want to weigh in? Yeah. Uh, you know, Ryan, I would agree. I think it may make it a little bit more difficult down the line. I mean, I would say there, there may be right now even a role for autonomous trucks, and we're seeing that in certain parts of the world, and I think even in this country, where you have a private roadway, actually, which is uh, where you do not have mixed traffic, such as on a mine site or certain construction end of it. And that may be a situation where you're really not having that problem of interaction with other vehicles. It may help that. maybe actually even a safer situation because even on some of those roads, it can be a little bit challenging sometimes for some of the drivers. So I think that can help fit that that need there. I think, though, we... Uh, we have a serious problem. Rick's absolutely right that the age that we have, um, a lot of our folks like Rick are getting to that point where they are looking to retire, um, and we're needing that new pool of people. And I, I think we do have a concern that the maybe send in a message that this doesn't have quite the future uh, that you know we, we had had in the past. I mean, I think it still does, but I think you know it's a mixed message we're sending to those young people. Uh, but it sounds like you think their future is going to look different, perhaps, than the career that Rick had behind the wheel in his cab. Gentlemen, thanks for exploring Thank this with us. Appreciate it. You My heard pleasure. Thanks Gre- for having us. Greg, Thank you very much. Greg Fulton, president of Colorado Motor Carriers Association, and Rick Ash of Lakewood, who owns his own rig and has been driving professionally for almost 30 years. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Crime is up in Colorado. New data from police statewide show an increase in almost every category, and that's after adjusting for population growth. Car thefts, assaults, murders are all up for a second straight year. CPR's Ben Marcus takes a deeper look at the numbers with Mike Lamp. 
So let's first look at violent crime. The statewide murder rate is up more than 20 percent since 2014. Do we know what's driving that? Well, kind of. So Denver and Pueblo have the highest murder rates in the state. They're both nearly identical. Uh, In 2016, these numbers are from last year, about eight murders per 100,000 people. We do that to kind of smooth out the population differences. And both cities have had outbreaks of gang violence in the last few years. And investigators in those cities tell me that gang violence is tricky. First, those murders are hard to solve because there's a lack of cooperation from rival gangs or from within the community. There's a lack of trust sometimes of the police. Second, there's a retaliatory nature to the violence. One killing or assault of a gang member can spark another and so on. Uh, But more recently, police tell me that there hasn't been a trend driving the violence one way or another. It's a mix. It's domestic violence. It's gangs. It's petty things like a late night argument after the bars close in Lodo. Now, crime rates in Denver and Colorado are up, but Colorado cities are not among the most violent places in the U.S., Well, St. Louis is probably the most dangerous city in the country, or one of the most, with a murder rate that's seven times higher than Denver's when Mm. you adjust for population differences. Now, if you look at Detroit, Detroit is about the same size as Denver, and it had five times as many killings. Uh, So while cities like Denver and Pueblo have higher rates than the national average, they're far from the most dangerous places in the country. In fact, the state's overall violent crime rate is 17% below the national average. So that's how uh, Denver compares to other cities. How about Denver's crime rate uh, historically? Uh, in the mid-1990s, this is 20 years ago, but there was a year that people refer to still as the summer of violence. Right. So I went back and calculated a murder rate for Denver in those mid-90s years. In those years, the rate was double what we see today, the murder rate. In 1992, there were nearly 100 murders when the city's population was much smaller. So by contrast, last year, Denver had 57 killings. The gang violence in the 90s created really a wave of fear in the city. At one point, then-Mayor Wellington Webb, his house and car were shot 15 times. He happened to be on vacation at the time. And now here it is 20 years later. Auto thefts, another big driver of crime, and uh, they are up 50% in the last several years. I understand that auto thefts had gone down because of new security measures that make it harder to steal cars, uh, and now they're up again. What's going on there? Yeah, so car thefts are up in a big way. 7,000 more cars were stolen in Colorado last year than in 2014. And you're right, auto thefts had been declining across the country and in Colorado. But Pueblo was recently ranked number two in the country in car thefts per person. And the problem is actually really along the front range. And criminals are targeting older model cars because they're easier to get into. And there's some evidence, actually, that there's an increase in the severity of crimes that are associated with the car thefts. And what does that mean, associated with car thefts? So... We had an analysis done of court records, and it shows that there are more secondary crimes charged against these car thieves. For instance, prosecutors in Denver tell me that they've seen cases where a car is stolen to commit other crimes, to help cover their tracks. So by the time the owner reports the car stolen, the crooks have dumped it somewhere. They're not stealing cars because they want that car. They are in some cases, but there's also this new strain of people stealing the car to use it in the act of other crimes. What role do illegal drugs play in Denver's crime numbers? 
So that's a good question. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of clear data on the statewide drug possession arrests, but we can drill down into Denver because the police post their crime data online and they update it every day. A drug that some people may have thought had its heyday, methamphetamine, it's up more than any other drug in terms of possession arrests in the city. So treatment admissions are up too. Arapaho House is the state's largest treatment center. And they say that in the past, alcohol used to dominate. Two-thirds of people who came in were seeking treatment for alcohol. But now you've got methamphetamine and heroin. Both of those rates of treatment admissions have doubled. And so a while back, I interviewed a former meth addict. And the one thing he said that stuck with me was I asked him what would be the consequence of more people using meth in the city or in the state. And he said simply more crime, that people would be trying to feed that habit, that lifestyle. Well, thanks, Ben. Thank you, Mike. CPR is Ben Marcus speaking with Mike Lamp. Let's hear more about the increase in car thefts now and how to prevent them. Carol Walker is on the board of Coloradans Against Auto Theft, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So we heard Ben say that older model cars are often targeted. How much does it matter what kind of car you drive? What we do see year after year is the same older uh, older model vehicles topping the most popular car thefts. So those older model Hondos, those older model Toyotas, the F-150 trucks, those are always topping the list. And unfortunately, a lot of people that drive these vehicles not only get them stolen once, but multiple times. Um, They're easier to break into. There is a market for the parts. A lot of the thieves just know they're easy to steal, and they're going for that easy steal, Ryan. Okay. And so that has to do with how easily stolen they are and potentially some of what they contain within and what the market is for that. I'm curious how often stolen vehicles are recovered. We have a high recovery rate, um, over 90% recovery rate. As we see auto theft go up, just a number of cars stolen, up to 347 cars are stolen in Colorado each week. So this idea that it's just a victimless property crime that'll never happen to me, the trends are showing us the opposite. Uh, We are seeing these numbers spike. We're seeing the violence, as Ben said, associated with auto theft escalate along with them being used as a getaway car to drive other cars. So unfortunately, if you drive a car that's popular with thieves, if you have your guard down, you leave your car unlocked all the time, leave it running, that's what the thieves tell us they're looking for. They're looking for that easy steal. So you are making yourself an easy target. Wait, the thieves have told you this? They've revealed their secrets? <laughs> you know, as um, as they're recovered, as the arrest rate for auto theft goes up uh-huh. because we have multi-jurisdictional task forces working toward that, the thieves basically say, yeah, in many cases, we're looking for that easy steal. Okay. And the easy steal, you said, was people who leave their cars unlocked. Seems like an easy fix. Uh, and then people who leave their cars running, huh? Yeah, there's a lot of common sense things that you can do. So understand, as you look at these numbers, that the chance of it happening to you have greatly increased. So do everything you can to not make yourself just that easy target, as we said. So locking your car, not leaving it running unattended. During the winter, we call them puffers because the gangs are actually looking for that telltale puff from the exhaust. And so they know that car is left running unattended. But during the summer months, air conditioning, leaving the sunroof cracked, a window cracked. A lot of times we'll go to the concert or the ballpark, leave a spare key in the car, uh, hide your valuables from plain sight, because sometimes they're targeting the stuff in your car, whether that's identity theft or valuables that they're stealing. As we say, especially as we see drug trafficking and drugs associated with auto theft, a lot of times they're looking for either stealing that car or all that stuff 
to try to trade that for drug money. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned stuff. So if I leave stuff that's valuable in plain sight, is it more likely my car will also be stolen? That's one of the things they're looking for and targeting, you know, just that smash and grab. They're going by, they, they're either looking for the equipment in your car, your GPS systems, or just the, the stuff in your car or your identity itself. Okay, but I'm, I'm asking if that right. stuff is also related to the stealing of the vehicle itself. In many cases, they're looking for the stuff and just taking that and taking off. But oftentimes, too, they're they're going doing the smash and grab, but then they realize they can break into your car or they see a spare key and they steal ah, your vehicle as well. Okay. Once they're in there, in other words. Uh, quickly, if I've got one of those older model like Hondas uh, or I think you said F-150s, is, should I buy like an aftermarket something? Alarm system tracking device? What would you say to those folks in particular? If you drive one of these older model vehicles, it's popular with thieves. Take all those common sense steps. At the same time, you may want to invest in an extra layer of protection, like a security system or even a club that's going to give you, you know, those are cheap and easy. across the steering wheel? That's Um, a retro. Well, I know. And a lot of law enforcement agencies are actually will donate them to you if you drive one of these vehicles. Because, again, that thief that's just going for the easy steal, that's going to be one more deterrent. If you can afford it, that extra layer of a GPS tracking system is also a good idea. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the why here. What are the reasons you think that there's a spike in this, particularly in the West? Well, as we're looking at these trends, and we actually, through the Colorado Auto Theft Prevention Authority, not only does that fund... Uh, multi-jurisdictional task forces, but also the Auto Theft Intelligence Coordination Center, which is actually um, located within the state patrol and kayak. They are looking at all of these trends, and really what they're seeing is crimes going up across the board, and unfortunately, those crimes associated with auto theft. What we've seen is up to 97% of those auto thieves that are charged are charged with other crimes. So they're not just stealing the car anymore. These aren't just kids out joyriding your, you know, your granddaddy's auto theft from 10, 20 years ago. They're stealing the cars many times as part of drug trafficking, as part of organized gangs. A lot of times when there is a big bust, there will be dozens of cars involved, stolen guns. Huh drugs involved with that as well. So that's really what we're seeing with the trends with auto theft. You mentioned drugs. We wanted to hear from law enforcement on this. Mike Greenwell is a commander with the Lakewood Police Department and part of the Metropolitan Auto Theft Task Force. He notes the increase in auto thefts comes around the time of marijuana legalization here, but he says this is just a suspicion. Any of the facts that we have about the increase in auto theft related to the legalization of marijuana is all anecdotal. We don't have any direct connection. I can tell you that out of my experience with the Auto Theft Task Force, that anywhere from two-thirds to three-fourths of the people we arrest for motor vehicle theft are in possession or under the influence of some type of drug. Very rarely is it just marijuana. It's usually you know cocaine, heroin, meth, prescription drugs, things like that. Again, he couldn't spell out what the connection would be between marijuana and car thefts. But uh, the commander does want to see stiffer penalty for car thefts, since so many thieves are repeat offenders. And he says a lot of people they arrest are stealing, as, as you've said, six or eight cars. And he simply wants car owners to be more cautious. Uh, you were with us about this time last year talking about the rise in auto thefts. I want to note, Carol... 
Um, it's only gone up, though, it appears. Anything else that can be done here? You know, unfortunately, as we're seeing these spikes, and it really is a public safety crisis as we see crime go up across the board, as we see auto theft involved with these crimes, we are putting resources toward it. I will tell you, without the Colorado Auto Theft Prevention Authority, which is a granting authority, which funds these multi-jurisdictional task forces, we really would not be able to address this situation. You know, especially the small police departments, even our urban departments, you know, they still have to put their resources toward, you know, homicides, you know, their drug units. So what they would put toward auto theft if we didn't have that funding and that resources really would be nothing. Plus, auto theft is a moving crime. So if we don't have Lakewood, Aurora, Denver, uh-huh, right. sharing information. Someone doesn't stay in one county right. when they steal a And they're sharing information. They're sharing the trends. They're also busting these different gangs that are working throughout the state. Those resources really are all that's standing between us and these numbers escalating much higher, given the trends that we're seeing. Carol Walker is with Coloradans Against Auto Theft, a partnership of law enforcement agencies, insurance companies, and others. It does get some state funding. And we should say that Walker also leads the Rocky Mountain Insurance Insurance Information Association. Arranged marriages aren't all that common in the U.S., certainly not as common as they are in India. That can lead to a culture clash for Indian-American families. Immigrant parents may want to steer their love lives of their U.S.-born children. And that clash is at the heart of When Dimple Met Rishi a young adult novel by Sanja Menon of Monument, Colorado. Her book premiered on the New York Times bestsellers list. And Sanja, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. So Dimple is an ambitious young woman. She's headed to Stanford, and she learns that her parents have picked out a potential husband, Rishi. Uh, This is a book for teens. Why take on arranged marriage, which is an idea that's really foreign to uh, many in America. Yeah. So I think that arranged marriage gets a pretty bad rap here in America and in a lot of Western countries. Um, and it's typically portrayed as like this creepy older guy with a much younger woman, you know, kind of forced together. And um, growing up in India myself, a lot of my older relatives are in arranged marriages. And that was not the reality for me at all. Um, I saw, you know, parents taking a lot of care to put these two well-matched people together. Well-matched as well in age, you're yeah, saying? Yeah, well in age and, you know, um, careers and studies and uh, all that kind of stuff, height even. And um, I just wanted to portray something a little bit different. And I thought a romantic comedy would be a hilarious and just goofy, you know, um, stage for that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, let me say that it's not that the parents are necessarily obligating these young people to marry. Right. It's more of a strong suggestion, <laughs> a, a hope that, that there will be a spark. That's uh, right. Are you... Uh, at all in an arranged relationship? Did your parents try to arrange yours? Uh, no, I preempted them. And okay. <laughs> I got married very young um, to my husband, who's a white Southern boy. <laughs> so not at all an arranged marriage. And in fact, nobody was too thrilled, but it all worked out. So we've been married 15 years now. <laughs> you, cut, you cut your parents off at the pass. In other I words. did. <laughs> uh, Dimple, this young woman, is appalled that her parents are trying to set her up. Um, but the young man, Rishi, is, is open to the idea. Why set it up that way? 
So I think I wanted to turn the kind of um, gender-based rule, I guess, that I see a lot, that women are really into weddings and marriage and just want to land that hunky man. And then men are more like about independence and career. And I wanted to flip that gender role and make the woman more ambitious and independent and the man more romantic. Have you seen in real life in your own relationships that play out where the woman is less interested in marriage? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've seen that a lot. Yeah. And I, even me, I wasn't, you know, really into marriage. And that's why I think it surprised everybody that I got married so young. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. No one expected that that would be the case. No. <laughs> um, your parents brought you to the United States from Mumbai, India, when you were 15, I understand. That's right. Um, how much of what you write in this book comes from personal experience? Because it's it's very much a book about culture beyond arranged marriage, right. about foods mm-hmm. and a traditional dress. Yeah. Um, a lot of it comes from my personal experience. Um, as far as Dimple goes, she's very fierce and independent, and her parents don't understand that. That was definitely me. And oh. on Rishi's side, um, he is struggling to pursue his art because his parents tell him that's not a real career. And that was definitely something I struggled with as well with writing. Yeah. How do you uh, think your parents feel about your writing career now? <laughs> I think now that it's accepted to a point, although when I hit the New York Times list, my family back home was not very happy because they think mothers should stay home and writing is a hobby, you know, and it's getting a little too successful. <laughs> so I definitely still deal with that, although it's much easier now as an adult than a teen. <laughs> wow. My mouth is agape at this moment. Yeah. I didn't expect that is how the sentence would end. When I hit the New York Times bestseller list, they were upset. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Sanja Menon, a writer from Monument, Colorado. Her new young adult uh, novel is called When Dimple Met Rishi. And I appreciated how much, I think, Hindi vocabulary you use. Yeah. You often put it in italics and sort of help the reader understand what it means contextually. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a heavy eyeliner that Dimple's <laughs> mom wishes her daughter would wear called yeah. Kajal. 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 Yes. Okay. I'm glad you're here to, to set me straight. <laughs> no problem. And then the terms, is it Sasural? Sasural, yeah. Which is the bridal home that a young married woman joins. Mm-hmm. And then there was a food I was unfamiliar with, I- idli cakes? Idli, yeah. So um, idli is like this little uh, rice cake. It's just like a white circular and people usually eat it um, with chutney. It's very popular in the South. And um, although Dimple's parents are not from the South, my parents are. And so I just wanted to put that in there. <laughs> to use that. <laughs> yes. Uh, apparently, kajal is like a new fashion. Tra- I Googled it. Yeah. And there are articles now in beauty magazines about <laughs> using this eyeliner, yes. which there is such tension about between mm-hmm. uh, Dimple and her mother. Right. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, when I was growing up myself, um, they k- used to come in these little pots. And my mom was always on us before anything, you know, put on your kaja. You know, you don't look um, feminine enough without it. And so I just had to put that in there. <laughs> okay. Well, it turns out it might be cool. It now, I know. Okay. It's retro now. <laughs> I understand that you're a big fan, Asenja Menon, of the Indian mo- movies known as Bollywood. Yes. And at one point, Dimple's friend says to the couple, Dimple and Rishi, you guys are like Raj and Simran, (laughs) uh, which is apparently a familiar reference to the 90s Bollywood hit. Uh, Maybe you can pronounce the title. I'll call Mm -hmm. it DDLJ. Yes. So that's... (laughs) This is the trailer. I love it. (laughs) What is DG... Tell us about this. So it's Dilwali Dulhania Lejayenge. And yes, it's it's about as famous as, I guess, like The Princess Bride. 
Um, ah. Yeah, so it's just iconic, so I had to put it in there. You had to put it in. <laughs> do you think that your book is at all like a Bollywood film? I do think so. I think that it has the, you know, optimistic love will conquer all message that a lot of Bollywood films have and also the very heavy family element. I love the subplot really of tech in this book. So uh, both Dimple and Rishi are involved in a summer program, uh, a kind of hackers summer program. And Rishi's a little less into it, perhaps, than Dimple <laughs> is. But um, talk about this, this like tech subplot and why it's there. Yeah, so I think that we see um, not enough STEM YA heroines. And, so STEM um, is science, technology, engineering, and math. Right. And YA, young adults. You yes. don't think there's enough STEM in YA <laughs> no. with all this lingo. I know. <laughs> you don't think that story is told enough? No, I don't. I think that we need more uh, girls, strong girls in YA that are into STEM. Um, because especially now, I think there's a huge push for girls in America to join the STEM kind of industry. To be a part of coding, for instance. Exactly. And... Um, to see themselves represented, I think, in literature, too, is very important. Uh, the relationship between uh, Dimple and her mother is 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 really lovely because it is tense, but mm-hmm. it's also loving. You, you yeah. can tell that they love one another. Uh, did your own mother look at the relationship between your character and her mother and think... What's going on here? <laughs> well, I will I will say that it just came out in India, so um, my parents have not read it yet. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So, um, but I, I think that that characterization of the mother daughter relationship is very common, and it's uh, in Indian families, and it's not it's not just unique to my own. Um, a lot of my friends had their mothers were these overbearing, controlling people. But at the same time, it came from this huge wellspring of love and adoration and wanting your daughter to succeed at all costs. And um, Dimple's mom can't like see that Dimple might be happy with a career. She sees like you have to get married and you have to have kids to be happy. And I think a lot of tension exists in that kind of relationship, even, you know, even with just your average Indian American family here in the U.S., you save your most unflattering portrayal for uh, a character named Harry, who is at this kind of coding summer camp, who who himself, I think, is of Southeast Asian descent. Southeast. He's Indian. Yeah. He's Indian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell us about this this character, Harry. Yeah, so they call him Harry. It's actually pronounced Huddy. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that um, there was it's very it was very important to me to portray someone from Indian descent who kind of has rejected their culture because I think that's something a lot of people in the diaspora deal with is like you either you go through this phase where you either. Um, you know, kind of embrace your minority culture, you reject it. And when you reject it, oftentimes you don't want to be reminded by other people that you belong to that minority culture. And that's where Hari was coming from. I think he just had a lot of self-loathing that he hadn't dealt with yet. And I felt that it was just very important to portray that side of prejudice too. 
Interesting. So that uh, the prejudice they face sometimes in this book comes from white people. Right. Uh, but you thought it was important to say that that can come from your your own community. Community, Absolutely. Did yeah. you feel that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think there's even a hierarchy. Like when I moved here with my parents, um, people who had been here for a long, a long time were sort of higher up in the hierarchy than huh. my fresh off the boat parents and me, you know. And um, so I definitely dealt with that, too. Yeah. Well, thanks for speaking with us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It's been a pleasure. Sanja Menon lives in Monument. And her new book, For Young Adults, which uh, sh- I hope you're proud, is on the New York Times bestsellers list. It's called When Dimple Met Rishi. <laughs> There's a kind of musical playground on a hilltop in northwestern Colorado. CPR's Brad Turner visited the town of Rangeley. He found that the world's about to hear more music from a place called The Tank. Everyone who loves The Tank remembers the first time they stepped inside, including Elaine Yuri. The acoustics in it are just marvelous. It does something to your heart. That's Yuri and a friend singing Amazing Grace inside this six-story tank. Yuri sang the same song when she first visited four years ago. At that time, she had to climb through a small portal to get in. And when you live in the oil field, you know better than to climb in any tank without somebody making sure it's okay to go into it, because there's people who have died around here climbing into tanks. So going inside the tank made her nervous. But when I got in there, I just hummed. A little bit, and I'm like, wow. Yuri went to the tank reluctantly. The place had a reputation as a spot where teenagers went to party. But she was on the town council, and a group of musicians from outside Rangeley asked Yuri and other leaders to help preserve the tank. Yuri understood their passion the moment she went inside. I have many people say, this is probably the best spiritual experience I have ever had. If I whistle, it sounds like this. This is why the tank is special. The smallest sound can reverberate and swirl around you for what seems like an eternity. Decades ago, the tank held water for a railroad in Colorado. But there's no railroad in Rangeley. The story goes that a power company moved the tank to town and rebuilt it on a hilltop more than 50 years ago, but it sat empty for years. Bruce Odland is a sound artist and composer. He's also board president of what's now called the Tank Center for Sonic Arts. His first time in the tank was four decades ago. He was touring through small Colorado towns with a traveling art show, creating sound collages for each audience. The day after a show in Rangeley, two oil workers told Odland they had something he had to hear. Odland says they drove him to the tank, they watched him climb inside, and then the workers banged on the metal exterior. You're in the middle of your own sound field, and it comes back with such amazing feedback. The tank is a a teacher. Everybody who comes here learns something about listening. The tank is unique because it has a cone-shaped roof, a floor that bows up in the middle, 
and metal walls that trapped the noises inside. That sound kept Odlin coming back. Sometimes he stayed in the tank for three or four days and used portable recording equipment to make music like this. He lives in New York State, but still visits Rangeley a few times a year. And he still loves introducing visitors like me to the tank. So I'm stepping in. The heat inside wallops you. The temperature rises above 100 degrees when the afternoon sun beats down. And it's pretty dark in here. And then Odlin shuts the door for better sound. Odlin steps toward two metal handles on the wall and smacks them with a mallet. Odlin and other supporters launched an online fundraiser in 2013 to preserve the tank, and another in 2016 to open it to the public and make it a recording studio and performance venue. If I were being a little cynical, you could almost laugh at people trying to save this rusty old tank on on a hillside somewhere out in the high desert. Well, it is on its face totally absurd. You wanted to what? But plenty of people backed it. About 1,400 donors chipped in more than $100,000 online to save the tank and upgrade it. So it is absurd, but it works. Now the tank sits next to its own recording studio, and a group called Friends of the Tank owns the property. Those campaigns to save the tank also got thousands of people to watch tank performances online. And they caught the attention of Roomful of Teeth, a Grammy-winning vocal group. This June, Roomful of Teeth flew to Denver and drove five hours across the Rocky Mountains to record new music and to give a concert at the tank. The group's artistic director, Brad Wells, remembers the first rehearsal. I keep thinking of the tank as a a bit like another planet. The normal Earth laws of acoustics don't apply here. The singers usually record in comfortable, dry-sounding studios. Wells says the tank is the opposite. A turn to the side or a step toward the wall can change your sound. An acoustical playground, in a sense. Yeah. So on a summer evening, as the sun dips behind the sandy hills outside Rangeley, Roomful of Teeth and other musicians give a concert. Three dozen audience members squeeze inside the tank. About 60 more listeners, many of them families with children, sit outside on lawn chairs. There's a set of speakers spread across the surrounding hilltops. The voices in Roomful of Teeth bounce off the desert. The music mixes with crickets down the hill. I asked Odlin how it felt to have Grammy-winning singers make music in the place he's worked hard to preserve. The fact that they're here and that they're... (laughs) is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Odlin and other tank supporters see the tank as more than a recording studio or a venue. They want it to be a sonic oasis, a place where students learn about sound and artists explore it when they step inside and listen. And it hits everybody the same way, from a kid to a professional musician from New York 
That's precious, a real honest-to-goodness sense of awe that my senses can do so much more. Sound means so much more than I thought. Odlin says that's why supporters wanted to save the tank and share those sounds with the world. Reporting from the tank in Rangeley, I'm Brad Turner, Colorado Public Radio News. And if you're just dying to see what the tank looks like inside and out, there are photos on our Instagram account. We're at News CPR. And uh, you can hear more music from inside the tank at our website, cprnews.org. That's the program for today with special thanks to Nell London, Stephanie Wolf, Shane Ramsey, and Michael Hughes. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.